All right, you guys and gals can have a seat. Y'all can be seated. Uh, we do have study guides. I know that at one point I saw someone coming around with them. If you don't have a study guide, they are on the tables to the left and the right of the chairs. So feel free to grab those, use those at your pleasure as your help. You guys doing okay? All right. Alright, so, so um, tonight we will finish up our study in the series that I've titled Chosen. Alright, next week, now listen, next week we are going to have a Q&A again, okay? And the Q&A is to help make sure you're understanding and grasping the immensity of the things that we're talking about. And, and here's the reason why, okay? And um, I think everyone in here can, can understand this, can grab this, can grasp this concept. We love our freedom in America, okay? We love our freedom as Americans. We all look to it and we all see that as Americans there has been a tremendous fight for liberty, and so every 4th of July we celebrate freedom as American citizens, and that is deeply ingrained and rooted in who we are. Now, what I am talking about in this series is not your freedom to choose. You need to understand that. I am talking about a choice, a free choice but it's not your free choice. It's not your authority. It's not your command at this choice. Rather, in this series, we're taking a step back and we're looking at the idea of choosing and choice from the viewpoint of God. And when we look at it from the viewpoint of God, the way we saw it last week, if you were here, is that we had better hope the choice rests with God because in our state, because of sin, because of wickedness, because of corruption, in our state as we are, we would never and we could never choose God. And all throughout the Bible, before we jump into really our study tonight, all throughout the Bible, you see God in His sovereignty. By the way, let me stop really quickly. I use the word sovereignty. And sovereignty is a term that's going to be thrown out a lot for anybody who stays in church for more than five minutes. Sovereignty is going to be thrown out a whole lot. But what does sovereignty mean? Casey? Sovereignty is like having dominion Having dominion over it? All right, Logan, would you, do, you, is that, do you want to add anything to it? Or? To rule over something? Yeah, to rule over it, to have authority over it, to have dominion over it. To be author, not just to have authority, but to be authoritative. Does that make sense? If... You have the authority, 
but you never exercise your authority, well, then you've done nothing with it. God is sovereign. He has authority. He has dominion. He has rule. And not only does He have those things, but He exercises His dominion. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Good. So when we're talking about God's choosing, when we're talking about His sovereignty, understand He has the right to choose, He has the ability to choose, and He does. Does that make sense, Lexi? Does that make sense? What makes sense? So, Lexi, again, be more concerned with your own ears than the ears of someone else beside you, okay? All righty. So, here's the thing. We see all throughout the Bible that God, in His sovereignty, chooses to make, a, to make a way where impossibility lays before mankind. One of the very first and coolest examples of that is in Genesis chapter 12 is where the, the, the choice comes in or where, we, where we're brought to the choice. But let me kind of read this up to you. Let me read it up there to you. You don't have to flip there. We're going to be flipping around a lot. Now, just to give you just to give you a kind of a bare bones structure of what's going on in Genesis, God creates everything. Adam and Eve sin. They fall in the garden and God immediately gives a promise. Okay. That even though sin has come into mankind, he is going to make a way. And do you guys remember what he says he's going to provide there at the beginning when he's pronouncing curses on the serpent, on the woman and on the man. Do you remember how he says he's going to make a way? Do what? He says that one day there will be a child born of the woman and that this child will be able to crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will strike his heel. You guys remember that? So all throughout Genesis, if you're reading it for the first time, honest to goodness, if you had never heard of the Bible before, if you had just picked it up and if you had just started reading in Genesis... At the beginning, like how we read every other book ever, if we just start reading there in the beginning, we're looking all throughout the Bible, well, where is this family? Where is this family going to come up? We know that a child is going to be born of a woman. We know that this child is going to be able to crush the head of the serpent, and he's going to be hurt in the process. It's going to bruise his heel. And you're looking for the family, okay? You come to like Noah and you think, well, maybe Noah is the family, but then Noah fails. You go through all these generations and you're looking desperately for the family. And if you get to Genesis chapter 11, you're still just grasping, where is this family that's going to have this child? <clears throat> I'm just going to read 27 through 32, say a brief word about it, and then I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 12, but this is it. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died in the presence of Terah, his father in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. And Sarai 
was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to go to the land of Canaan. And they came as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Why did I read that to you? What in the world does that have to do with any of this? I'm going to point this out to you right now that if you're desperately looking for the family, if you're looking for God to do something with a family, there is one name that stands out here above the others, and it's Abram and Sarai, because you look at that and you say, there is no way they're the family. Why? Because Abram and Sarai can have no children. This is not the family. Maybe it's Lot. Maybe it's Haran. Maybe one of them. Maybe it's, it's one of those guys. But you know for sure it's not Abram. And then in chapter 12, And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house, the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, God looks at an impossible situation and he says to that impossible situation, my choice is to do something with you. And we had better hope that God has the ability to do that. And not only that he has the ability to do that, but that he's still doing that today. Because if he's not still doing it today, we face an impossible situation that we will never, ever, ever, ever be in a right relationship with Christ. Does that make sense? So let me pray for us. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to jump into kind of our official study guide, okay? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you and we do praise you and we thank you that we can look to your word and we can see that the truth lays before us that we cannot in our strength, in our abilities, we cannot in our own wills or our own freedoms, we cannot ever have a right relationship with you. It is impossible. But that God, you choose because you have authority, because you have might, because you have will, because you have freedom to do that. And God, I pray that tonight we would rejoice in your sovereignty, in your choosing, so that we will recognize salvation for what it is. It's a work of your hand from beginning until the end. It's in your Son's name, Jesus, we ask these things and for His sake. Amen. All right. So, right there, the first, why is it important to understand that God chooses to save people? Because we could never, 
and Wood never choosed him. I'm going back just a bit to grab a little bit of what we said last week because it's important. If you were not here last week, you need to hear it. If you were here last week, it does not hurt to go through these truths again, okay? So why is it important to understand that God chooses to save people? Because we could never and we would never choose him. So we've got some verses there to prove that. Romans 7, 18, who would like that? Logan, uh, Psalm 14, 2 and 3, Aiden. Uh, and Andre, will you take Romans 3, 10 through 12? All right? So it's important to understand that God chooses to save people. That's vital and that's important because in front of us is the impossibility of choosing God. We cannot choose God and we would not choose God. It's an impossible thing. The Bible makes that clear. It's a barrier that we cannot climb. We can't climb it because we're dead anyway and dead people can't climb anything. But we stand before an impossibility. We cannot, and even if we could, we would not. All right? Romans 7, 18. Read that for me when you get there. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, I wish I could do good. I want to do good, but I cannot do it. Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament letters, even he sits there and says, I wish I could do good. I wish I could choose the things of God, but in myself, I can't do it. Psalm 14, 2 through 3. God looks down to see if there's anyone who would seek after God. God is looking from the heavens. The, the, the psalmist kind of paints the picture. He's looking down to see if anyone seeks after him, if anyone would follow him, if anyone would look for him. And as he looks down from his throne upon all of creation, there is none who seek after him. And that's you and that's me. There's none who seek after him. Romans 3, 10 through 12. No one does good, not even one. We can't do good. No one seeks after God. No one follows after God. We don't want it. We can't do it. And so it's important to understand that God chooses to save people because we cannot and we will not ever choose God. Now this, at the very beginning here, should start to fly in the face of things maybe you've heard before. Not from me or from Pastor Tim or from Pastor Drew or Pastor Brad, not from Joe, not from uh, Tim, not from Johnny, not from Mr. Heath, not from any of those guys. These guys know the Bible and they'll present the truths from the Bible. But in our sensitivities, so often we look at you and say, listen, listen, you need to choose God, you need to put your faith in Him. You need 
to give him your heart. You need to. You should do. You are commanded to do. And we talk about the strength that we have. And all of those things, where the Bible lands in these verses is in complete contrast. If we're talking about salvation, it cannot be the strength of our own hands. It cannot be the work of our wills, but it must be an act of God and God alone. Okay? So what I mean by that is that there's none of us in this room, and I mean none of us in this room, who will ever be saved apart from God's choosing. You cannot do it. Okay? So let's move into number two. What does it mean to be chosen by God? We've got a definition that we're going to use kind of to help us understand. What does it mean to be chosen by God? Here it is. Before creation, God chose some people to be saved. Not because of any good in them, but only because of His sovereign good pleasure. Before creation, God chose some people to be saved. Not because of any good in them, but only because of His sovereign good pleasure. Now that's a pretty good definition to understand God's choice, to understand what He's doing there, okay? And that word, God's choice, what He does is all over Scripture. It's littered all over the Old and the New Testament. All right, so who would like to do 1 Peter 2, 9, Anthony, Deuteronomy 7, 6, Casey, and Josiah, I'm going to get you to do John 15, 16, okay? All right, 1 Peter 2, 9, uh, whenever you are there, sir. Excellencies. Right there at the beginning at the beginning of it, you are a chosen race. You did not choose God, but you have been chosen by God. So God chose a race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Deuteronomy 7, 6. Who had that one? Of all the people in the world, God chose them to be a special treasure. God chose them. And again, when we look at the story of Abram, which I read to you earlier, why did God choose Abram? What was it about Abram that God just went, whoa, whoa, did you see that? Hey, angels, did you look? Did you see that? Did you see that? Let me choose that guy. What was it about Abram that made him choose him? Nothing. In fact, if there's one person who's obviously not to be chosen, it's Abram. 
And God chose him. And also John 15, 16. That's Jesus talking. You did not choose me, but I have chosen you. So understand, when we're talking about being chosen by God, we're understanding that God will choose us, not that we sovereignly choose him. Guys, I'm going to drill this into you tonight. I hope to drill it into you so much that you almost sit there and be like, oh, it's so obvious. Of course, it's plain as the nose on our faces. God's the one who chooses. God is the only one who can choose. I want to drill this into you. Not because I want to make you a good Calvinist, let me step back just a moment. When I say a Calvinist, there are two really big schools of thought in Christianity. One is Calvinism. One is Arminianism. They're named after some of the guys who wrote some books. Okay, Calvinism is known as Reformed Theology. All right, Arminianism is known as Semi-Pelagianism, if we're being honest. Uh, but what Arminianism says is that, and they've got several brands of it, what they say is that, that God starts the work of salvation, but then you, in your faith, complete it. That there's a choice by God and there's a choice by man, and somewhere in the middle they meet and poof, salvation happens. Okay? What Reformed thinking says, or what Calvinism says, is that, no, we're dead. God comes down, picks us up, says, here, let me give you some faith. And then we take that faith and we say, I want to put my faith in you, God. And in that act, salvation happens. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? And then not only does he do that, he gives us a completely new life. A new birth. So I'm not going to drill this idea of God chooses into your head to make you good Calvinists, but to give you an understanding of how the Bible presents our salvation. Okay? If it's not God, it doesn't happen. That makes sense? Okay. So let me give you just a, a few other words that the Bible uses to describe God's choosing. All right? And those are predestined and elect. Now, I'll kind of go through and I'll give you these terms a little bit later on. This is a little bit more academic than last week's. Last week's was a little bit more impassioned because I really wanted to break down any thought that we are good on our own. This week, since we understand that on our own we are not good, I need to build you up a foundation that you can look up to God with. And so to do that, we've got to do work laying down some bricks. It's got to be a little bit more academic, a little bit more of a grind so that we elevate our gaze to see Christ. Does that make sense? So some other words the Bible uses to describe God's choosing and salvation are predestined and elect. Now, let me tell you this story 
really quickly. Now, I used to work at a daycare uh, at First Baptist Pinson. And I love the people at First Baptist Pinson. I have uh, gotten to know them over the years. And they are very, very wonderful people. We've done um, Disciple Nows with the student ministry at First Pinson a couple of times. We have been able to make friendships with them. We used to do kids camp with First Pinson a long time ago. But there was this one man who will not be named, but let me, let me make this statement before I get started. He now, understands, he now understands where we're at tonight. He now understands that it's God's choice and God's choice alone. But at the time that I was having this discussion years ago with him, he had not arrived there. Rather, he had come to this hostile idea of that word in particular, predestined, predestination. He hated that term. I was talking with this man. He was a, he's a, uh, an older man. He's grown up in church. He's probably been in church longer than I've been alive, has been a leader in church for longer than I've been alive. And I'm sitting there and talking with him, and we start talking about how the schools that are training preachers now are really starting to do a good job. There was a lot of resources available to them, and they were starting to put out preachers who were going back to the Word of God. They weren't just throwing out a whole lot of fluff, but that when they go to school, when they get the, the training they need, a lot of these guys are coming out and they're going back to the Bible as the root. And we were talking about how that was a good thing. And I mentioned at the time there was a, a really prominent uh, president of a seminary uh, who I mentioned, I said, he's really, really good. I've really appreciated what he's been able to do and the students that are coming out of that seminary. And he looks at me and says, yeah, he's, he's an all right guy. He says, but he's a Calvinist. And so he's messing people up like that. He says, he believes in all that predestination stuff. He believes in, in that. And I said, well, let me stop you first and tell you that I'm a Calvinist. I believe in all that predestination stuff. And I said, and if you claim to be a Christian who believes the Bible, you have to believe in it too. Well, I, I don't believe in it. No, I don't. I said, well, you, you have to believe in it because it's in the Bible. It's in black and white in the Bible. Let me show you where it is in the Bible. We've got some Bible verses that are going to help us see some of those terms. Romans 8, 29 through 30. Uh, Jonathan, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Josiah, I want you, uh, Andre, to take Romans 9, 10 through 13. And Anthony, you'll get Matthew 24, 22. Aiden, there'll be more verses, okay? All right. So the word predestined, the word election, God's choice is all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. And in just a moment, we'll be reading a verse that is, or a couple of verses that are some of the biggest or most hated verses for all of those who despise Reformed theology, uh, the idea of predestination or anything like that. But first, let's, let's go to some ones. If you believe in the Bible, you have to believe in predestination. You've got to believe in it. You've got to believe in election. You've got to believe in the choice of God, not of man, because it's all over the Bible. So Romans 8, 29 through 30, read that for us when you get there. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Wait, wait, stop. Those 
He also what? Predestined. Ah, what? It's in the Bible? And when I read that verse to that guy, he... And I said, you've never read this? Well, I mean... I mean, yeah, I've read the Bible a bunch. But you've never read this? It's in the Bible, sir. I'm sorry, I'll continue. Wait! Twice? 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 Like in, like in the same sentence? Twice? Keep going. At that verse alone, he was pretty wigged out. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Wait, what did God do? What? Chose us. Keep going. Wait, what? Huh? You stop right there. Did you just say that P word? Predestined us? What? Keep going. Those verses right there, when he saw that the word predestined, it's in black and white. You just heard it being read. He said to me, well, I mean, I guess it is there. And I said, it is. You have to believe in predestination. You have to believe in the choice of God. You have to believe in the election of God. You might define it differently than I do. But you have to believe in it. Now in just a moment, I'm going to give you the definition of it. Okay? But, and I'm going to give you the definition of it from the Bible, not one that I've made up. Okay? But you have to believe in it. If you're going to, honest to goodness, be a Bible student, you have to believe in it. All right? This, these verses right here, these are some of the most difficult verses for anyone in the Bible, just period. But certainly for those who believe that it's God comes down here halfway and we go the other half of the way and somewhere in the middle, salvation happens. Okay? Okay? These verses are really difficult for that. Okay, so Romans 9, 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebecca mm -hmm. had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, who they were not yet born and had nothing, nothing either good or bad, 
Wait, God's purpose of what? Election. God's purpose of election. God's choice, not ours. Before any good or bad had been done, God's election. Keep going. Esau. Those last words, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Those verses send chills up and down our spine. And it should. It is a bittersweet thing to hear in the very same sentence the love of God and the hatred of God. How many of us how many of us have heard that God is love? Everyone, right? How many of us hear as often that God hates? Very few of us hear. We've heard it before, but we, we might not. Okay, yeah, so we hear a lot. God hates that. God despises that, has a hatred against sin, has a hatred against, and we'll go and say, he has a hatred against Satan. But here in this verse, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Why? Why is that the case? And a lot of people look at this and they say, they say, how could God hate Esau? How could he do it? Well, let me tell you how he could do it. Because Esau was a walking dead thing living out his sinful and unrighteous and evil life just like you and I do. Esau, when you read the story, had no love for God, had zero love for any of his things. Esau did everything against his family, everything against his God, and he did it on purpose. How can he hate Esau? It's easy. The real question in this verse is not how is it that God could hate Esau, but the real question is, how could he love Jacob? Because when you read about Jacob's life, he is constantly deceiving his brother, deceiving his father. He's constantly lying and manipulating. He's constantly weaving in and out lies. And he's hurting the people who love him. He literally wrestles against God. God meets him in the wilderness and Jacob fights him all night long. How can God love Jacob? He is just as evil and just as wicked as Esau, maybe even more so in some respects. He is just as depraved. He is just as sinful as you and me. How can God love Jacob? 
He says it in the verse. Or in those verses. It says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God, according to His choice, or your translation says according to His election, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. How could God love Jacob? Because God chose him. And when you read the story of Jacob, you see someone just as wicked as his sinful brother. And all of a sudden, you see God meet him, and boom, Jacob is transformed and changed. So much so that even his name is changed. Jacob means deceiver. means liar. And then that interaction where he's wrestling with God and day starts to break, God looks down at him and he says, let me go for day is upon us. And he grabs on to him and he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Again, we see this conniving and scheming little liar holding on to God and saying, I'm not going to let you go until you give me a blessing. And God looks down at him and God asks him a question. He says, what is your name? And at this, man, you have to feel that Jacob's heart sank. I'm Jacob. I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. My identity is wrapped up in every evil and wicked thing that I am. God reaches down, touches him on the hip. His hip comes out of socket instantly. God leaves him. For the rest of his days, he has a limp. And later on, after God has evidently Obviously, because you see in his life a change. God's choice has come to fruition in Jacob's life. Jacob gets a name change. He's no longer Jacob, the deceiver and the liar. His name has changed to Israel. We had better hope God chooses. Because even the heroes in the Bible aren't heroes without God. Matthew 24, 22. Wait, for the sake of the who? The elect. Keep going. That's talking about the end times. Alright? That's talking about the days when Satan is bringing about deception after deception after deception after deception. And the deception is so great and it's so vast that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. But God cuts the time short so that there will be none of his elect, none of his chosen who are deceived. Guys, we had better hope in the choice of God. Because none of us will ever choose him. 
Is this making sense? Are you guys hanging with me? Are you guys grasping what's going on? Okay. So we're going to kind of move through these last points a little bit quicker. We have to. Number four, in order to really understand this idea of being chosen by God, we understand when He chose us, we understand why He chose us, and we understand how He chose us. When, why, and how. When, why, and how. So let's move quickly to the when. When did God choose us? God chose us before creation. I want everybody to open up their Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Everybody go in their Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. All right? And the reason why we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 is we're going to hang out there for some definitions. By the way, these, this when, why, and how is going to give us the proper definition of predestination, of election, of God's choosing. All right? It's going to give us the proper definition. So when did God choose us? God chose us before creation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says this, Just as He chose us, who chose? He chose or we chose? He chose. Not just as we chose, but just as He chose us in Him, and here it is, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. Just as He chose us in Him, and when did He do it? When did the verse say He did it? Before the foundation of the world, before creation itself. Guys, before you guys were born, before your father and mother were born, before your grandparents, before this country, before your ancestors, before Adam and Eve, God chose His elect. He chose His predestined. He chose His people before creation. Guys, that's a big deal. That's a humbling thing. That God knew what I was going to be. This walking, sinfully dead thing only doing wickedness and evil. And God chose me before the foundation of the world, before creation. He chose me. And not Hitler or, or Stalin or Gandhi or he, he he chose me. I mean, I don't have near 
the clout that those men had. He chose me before the foundation of the world? Why? Why? Why would he choose me? That's the next question. Why? Because of his sovereign good pleasure. Because of his sovereign good pleasure. Why did he choose me? Because he's good. Because he was pleased to do it. Because he wanted to do it. Just look down the next couple of verses. Ephesians chapter 1. Let me start up in verse 4 and I'll read through verse 6. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Not, not because of something I did. Not because He looked at me and thought, hey, He looks like a good guy. I'll choose Him. Not because of anything like that. He chose me before the foundation of the world just because He's good. Just because He was pleased to do it. Just because it was His will. It's not because it's not because I, I, I can speak really loudly or it's not because I enjoy going camping with you guys or playing games with you guys. It's not because of anything like that. It's just because it's because he's good. How? How did God save me? I mean, I understand it before the foundation of the world. I understand that he did it because he's good, but how can he make something like me this wretched despicable dead thing how can he make me his that's the next question how through the righteousness of Jesus and through his sacrifice on the cross if you flip over just to the next chapter Ephesians 2 1 through 9 tells us this and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And hopefully you guys are all in that place going, yeah, I know I was. I know I am. Yeah, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. I'm this dead thing, this sinfully dead thing walking around. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. You see, a dead, sinful thing walking around. According to the curse of this course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In other words, I'm walking around like that, following after the will and the desires of Satan and disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich 
in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ. With Christ, through his righteousness, through his sacrifice, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. How? Before creation, He did it. He did it because He's good, but how does He do it? And the answer is wrapped up in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. So that God looks down at me in my sinful condition and He says, I choose you and I can make you right before me because of the work of my Son who has gone and lived a righteous life in your place, who has taken the death that you deserve and laid it upon Himself, rose to life three days later, ascended to heaven, is now seated at the right hand of God. He will go back to earth and He will take His bride back to be with Him. It's through the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that I can be chosen, that I can be predestined, that I can be elected. And thank God... He chooses on that basis and that basis alone. Because if He did not choose me in Christ, if the choice was not made through what He did and who He is, then God Himself would be unjust. And that's a topic for a different sermon. Understand this. God just can't look at you and go, you know what, I choose you. Come on over here, buddy. You know what, I choose you. Come on over here. It can't just be that simple. It has to be, I choose you. And it comes through a complete transformation. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but I make you alive in Christ. Because if He just looks at a dead thing and says, come on over here, dead thing, and you can just stay dead over here, God's unjust. He makes us alive in Christ. So when before the creation of the world, why? Because He's good. And how? It's through the righteousness of Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross. So we need to understand this. It's the last point. Every step of salvation is a gift of God. I'm going to end by reading these verses. And I'll read these verses to you before. I'll read them to you several times again to you because these verses, Romans 8, 29 through 30, are what is known, what is known as the golden chain of salvation. And you've got a little 
picture here at the bottom of your study guide that shows you the golden chain of salvation. Let me read it to you. We've read these verses earlier tonight. Let me read them to you again. Every step of salvation from the beginning to the end is all of God. It says this, because those whom He foreknew... Now understand this. Some people get mixed up here and I'm not going to belabor this point too long. Some people are going to say, well, you see, He knew that I would choose God and that's why He chose me. See, God foreknew before creation. That, some people say that's what predestination means, that God knows everything. So since God knew I would choose Him, He chooses me. Is that kind of, He meets me halfway and I meet Him halfway and then poof, salvation comes about. That's not what this is talking about. Understand, because those whom He foreknew, He foreknew. It's not our knowledge of Him to choose, it's what He knew. He foreknew. Because those whom He foreknew before creation, He foreknew them, He called them, He chose them as His own, they were His. Because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So foreknown, predestined, the first two links in the golden chain of salvation so that He would be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Understand, there is not a link in the chain of salvation that is not completely and totally 100% God. So what does this mean? Does this mean that does this mean that my cousin Matt and this is for real does this mean that my cousin Matt that there's nothing I can do to save him? Yeah, that's what that means. Does this mean that I give up? No. Because I can't do anything to save him. But God can. And so what do I want to do every step of the way? Every time I see my cousin Matt, I want to put the truth about Christ ever before him. His righteous life, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. I want to put that before Him constantly. Not because I can do anything to change Him, but because God can. What does this mean? Does this mean that, does this mean that I have no hope? Does this mean I have zero hope? Yeah. You've got no hope. Unless God intervenes. You see, in myself, I have no hope. In myself, I contribute and help in no way. But in God, there is not a single sin, there is not a single wretchedness that God cannot overcome and that He has not already overcome on behalf of those that He has saved, who He's chosen 
predestined and elected. So this is a tough lesson, guys. Because in essence, what I've tried to do is I've tried to take the wind out of your sails of ever thinking that you do anything to turn God's eye towards you and to make you worthy. Rather, this gospel is one that causes us to rejoice in Him and Him alone. Let me pray for us. And we're going to sing to God and to His Savior who's made a way for us. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we love You. We do praise You. I thank You that the saying is true that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and that the next sentence is also true. But God, being rich in mercy, has made a way for us to be with You, God. And Father, we cannot, we will not ever choose You on our own strength or our own ability, but God, You can and You have chosen people for Your good pleasure through Your Son. I pray we would see Your Gospel as infinitely good and is infinitely wonderful. And that we would praise You with everything we've got. It's in Your Son's name, Jesus, we ask these things and for His sake. Amen.